Thank you, Pastor. And Domo, see, I know who was here last night, huh? Domo, very handy phrase in Japanese for hello, goodbye, I'm sorry, thank you. Almost say anything you want it to mean. Good to be with you again. We had fun last night with the youth and then with everybody and had some good, boy, you guys know how to make desserts, huh? Soup was good too. But I love apples and apples are expensive in Japan. Yeah, very expensive in Japan. And last night we had a whole table of apple desserts. So the young people and I went to the dessert table first, seeing that there was plenty of soup it would be around. I had my piece of pie and then I went back for some delicious soup. So thank you. 25 years ago, I stepped off the airplane in Japan, in Tokyo, for the first time. It's like stepping into a new world. Got off the airline and walked by a whole row of airline attendants bowing deeply to you. Walked down through a beautiful, very clean airport into the basement, got on a high-speed train that took me out through rice fields and bamboo groves, and then into the heart of massive city, 30 million people. Way more than live in Pennsylvania, I'm guessing. I haven't looked that up, but all in one little... One very huge city. And I remember getting out and looking up and going, what am I doing? Everybody knows cities are dangerous and dirty. I grew up in Meadville, Pennsylvania, actually six miles out on a farm, which was very important to us. Not in Meadville, but outside of Meadville on the farm. And here I am in Tokyo. But, you know, Tokyo was different. It wasn't dangerous and it wasn't dirty. Tokyo is clean. When I got up early in the morning, 5.30 in the morning, if you go out, you'd see all the neighbor ladies out sweeping the street in front of their house. An hour or so before the shops open, the shop workers all show up, and the guys that work at the Toyota dealer, and they're all out there going up and down the road in the street, picking up the garbage and sweeping it every morning. The garbage trucks are scrubbed so they every day so that they sparkle and they play this music box music as they come down the street ding 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 so you know the garbage guys coming if you haven't got your stuff out in time you can run out and throw it in there it's clean if you go into a nice department store in Tokyo you'll see a lady standing probably at the bottom of every escalator she stands there all day dressed kind of like a flight attendant in a suit and a little cap real sharp and she bows to you and says yurashimasen yurashimasen welcome welcome as you get on the escalator but if you look carefully, you notice she's got one hand on the rail of the escalator all day long as it goes around, and she's got a rag there. She's disinfecting it so that when you put your hands down, you never have to put them on anybody's germs. It's always clean for you. If you go into the bathroom in the same department store, you'll see a little lady standing in the back corner quietly waiting for you to finish so she can clean it before the next person comes in and uses it. Yorobashi Kamara, the biggest electronic store probably in the world, it's massive, Store in Tokyo, if you go into the men's bathroom, there's a plaque on the door right in the entranceway that says, please, no napping or eating meals in the restroom stalls. <laughs> I was on the Pennsylvania Turnpike a few weeks ago and stopped at a rest area and I checked and there was no such sign. <laughs> Nobody brave enough to try. Japan is clean. Japan is safe. 30 million people in Tokyo and 30 million subway tickets sold every day. I showed last night videos of professional pushers whose job is to load the subway, cram them on. My wife can go into the subway any time of the day or night, anywhere in Tokyo, and not be afraid. My kids, including my little Erica, starting out in first grade, walks a mile to a train station, gets on that crowded train, peeks through people's legs, rides the train for a while, gets off, walks a few more blocks down the road with thousands of people walking on it, literally, gets on another train, rides again, gets off at school, comes back home. No problem. Japan is safe. 
Japan is efficient. World's fastest trains hurl you at 200 to 300 mile an hour all over the country. Tokyo alone has 121 different subway lines, hundreds and hundreds of stations, moving all those people around. And you know what? On our line, about every three minutes a train comes in. And it's a big train with a thousand or so people on it. And hundreds get on, and three minutes later another comes in. And if they are 30 seconds late, that's no exaggeration. When they come in, they'll have an announcement. And they'll be saying, we're so sorry for being late and ruining your day. We'll try never to do it again. Years ago when I rode Amtrak out east, I was glad if it came the same day as my ticket. <laughs> I said it was coming. but Things were clean and efficient. And, and Japan is a prosperous nation, like America. You all know, and you know your history, but 60 years ago, Japan was laid in ruins. Hiroshima and Nagasaki had been destroyed by atomic bombs. Tokyo had been burnt to the ground. More died in Tokyo than in the other cities, I believe. The mountains had been burnt off, so there were no trees left. One of the older ladies in our class said she remembers eating grass, because that's all there was. But America helped after the war, and, and the Japanese worked incredibly hard. And in 50 years, they went from having nothing to being the second largest economy in the world. A country the size of California, having the second largest economy in the world. People basically have the same per capita income as the states. Most people have a car, have a nice car, a house, a big screen TV, Nintendo and all those games that I don't even know what they're called, but your kids do. Japan has very, low, uh, very little um, gap between high class and low class. There aren't very many really rich people like in the states. There aren't very many poor people. They keep everybody kind of in the middle, so everybody seems to do okay. When I first went to Japan, it was the late 1980s. And at that time, I have, I have a clipping at home from a newspaper or somewhere, a scrapbook from a newspaper, that showed the price land in Tokyo. And they had, on the street, they'd taken tape and masked off a square meter, which is about a square yard of land. And there was a sign there, 8 million U.S. dollars for one square meter of land. In downtown Tokyo, there's, the emperor has a palace. There's a garden, and a, kind of like Central Park in New York. I think it's probably smaller. You can walk around it during your lunch break. And uh, that small piece of real estate in central Tokyo is worth more than the entire state of California. I remember looking around and thinking, you know, Japan has tried since World War II to create the perfect society. And it looks like they've succeeded. It's clean, it's safe, it's prosperous. There's no crime problem to speak of, no drug problem, no school dropout problem. Very little class disparity or homeless problem. It just seemed to work. And then I lived there for a few days. And it doesn't take long for anyone who lives in Japan to tell you that something's desperately wrong. The outside looks beautiful. But the inside is empty and broken. People are hopeless. We just moved to the north side of Tokyo and took our first church, Sayama Alliance Church. And I got a call one day from a young man in his 20s. He said, I've never been to church, don't have a Bible, but I have some questions for you. I was thrilled because Japan is a hard country. And 0.2% uh, believers, two out of a thousand are believers. So we don't find people knocking down our door very often. So I answered his question a few days later. He called back and then he called back again. And he was calling every day, sometimes two times a day. And so I said, well, let's get together. Let me answer your question. So he gave me his address and I went to Enoki-kun's house. He was 25. I met with him and his mother. And she told me a story. 25, she said he was a high school student doing pretty well in school. His grades were okay, his friends were okay, no, no noticeable problems. 
And then he just checked out. He says, Mom, I can't go to school today. Or the next day, or the next day. And from that day, seven years had followed where he had lived in his bedroom. She puts a meal on the floor outside of the door each day for him. He eats the meal, but his life is confined to that room. He can't face society. Enoki Kun is one of more than a million young people in Japan called hikikomori. Hikikomori is not depression or mental illness. It's a social phenomenon known only in Japan where millions of young people just say, I can't face society anymore. I can't do it. A society which is perfect, which means you have to be perfect. You have to give 150% of your energy and ability and every day. What for? There are no answers of the what for. Just so you can do it again tomorrow. There's no room for slack, no room for a mess up. And this incredible pressure is just too much. And so kids say, I can't do it. So they go to their rooms. They often cover the windows with paper. They sleep during the day. They wake up at night, eat the meal that their mom left outside of the door, play video games, watch TV, read a manga, comic book, wonder why they have to live. They're not considered to be hikikomori unless they've been locked in their room for at least six months. And yet there are more than a million young people in Japan who've been locked away like this for six months. Usually it's five years, ten years. For most of them, this is rather new. There's no end. Mrs. Long, another Alliance missionary, Lois Long, worked with a lady in her 30s whose mom, not a Christian, but came to the church and said, can you want my daughter? She hasn't come out of her room forever and she's 30-some single. She still lives at home. So Lois would call and the lady would not respond, of course. She wouldn't even open her bedroom door, but her mom would lay the telephone on the floor in the hall outside the door. And Lois is a very chatty lady and she would chat. <laughs> One-way conversation. She would chat for a while, then read the Bible and pray and hang up and call back the next day. And the next day and the next day for weeks and months, trying to convince this lady that there is hope. There is a point to life. You can come out and live. There's something worth it. A million people living like that in Japan today. But hikikomori is just one of the signs that there's, there are big problems. Japan has the highest suicide rate of any developed nation. More than 30,000 people committing suicide each year. The favorite spot is the foot of Mount Fuji, because Mount Fuji, a beautiful mountain, is a symbol and a spiritual symbol of the country. There's a forest at the bottom where people hang themselves, and so the police have to go through and collect the bodies. And in recent years, when they go through, they collect 70 or 80 bodies at a time as they're going through these woods. Jumping in front of a train is another favorite way. And so the central train line that goes right through the middle of town is named Central Line. Central is Chuo in Japanese. But they call it the suicide line because people are always jumping in front of it. A couple years ago on Christmas Day, my family and I were coming home and the train was stopped because somebody had jumped. And the next week on New Year's Day, I was on the train and again my train was stopped because somebody had jumped. Not wanting to live any longer. Mental illness is through the roof with the highest rate of hospitalization for mental illness in the world. The marriage rate has plummeted. Japanese young people say, I've never seen a good marriage. Why would I want to be married? The birth rate is dropping so fast. In Japan, they pay us to have babies. We get money every month until the kids are in high school, I believe it is, for every kid we'll have. Opposite of China, which has so many people is trying to restrict Japan, saying, please have babies, and yet it's less than one baby per family. As the young families say, why would I want to bring a kid into this world? I don't want one. Japan has got huge problems. The people are living in darkness. They've looked for answers and they found none. And so many of them have decided there are no answers. This is all there is. Like people anywhere, they've tried religion to answer their questions. And most Japanese have two religions. To us as Americans, that sounds really weird. But if you go into a Japanese house, 
In the living room on this side, there's a Shinto altar. And Shinto is the native religion of Japan, thousands of years old, the worship of nature and the spirits of nature. So the, the spirits of Mount Fuji or the spirit of the waterfall or the sunset or the big tree in the backyard, anything which is beautiful and awe-inspiring is worshipped as a god. But right across the room on the other altar is, on the other wall is a Buddhist altar and it's a big cabinet. You open the doors, there are candles and uh, that is where you worship all the ancestors. Everyone who dies becomes a god. Don't real, not real sure what happens after that. The spirits are out there floating around. They're gods, but you have to take care of them too. So every day you put rice and green tea and maybe some sake or fruit, their favorite food there. And you put the food on the shelf and you clap your hands to wake them up and you pray to them and for them. And so the Japanese say we have 8 million gods, which means, of course, infinite number. The Shinto gods, the Buddhist gods, will take them all. And yet these gods have not answered the cry of their heart or not given them a purpose to live Kumiko came to our church with a broken heart. She was in her 50s, late 50s, married but with no children. So she lived with her husband and his family, which is often the case in Japan that you have two generations together. But the relationships were terrible for many years. And eventually the emotional stress um, made her physically ill. And she was desperately ill. She couldn't sit up. She couldn't lift her arms to feed herself, flat on her back, wanting to die but not even having the strength to take her own life. She was moved from the countryside to Tokyo to a, a big hospital for surgery and to be in the hospital for a while. And after the surgery, the doctor realized that even though she had all these physical problems, that the stress was probably a major reason. So he said, you can't go back home, not for a while. You need to go somewhere where you can rest up and rehabilitate, get strong. So she went to her family's, her mom and dad's place. And they happened to live near one of the 40 very small alliance churches in Japan and the church we were at. So as she got strong enough to walk, Kumiko would go out for a walk each day and walk around town. She had no, no desire to live, she said, so she would look at the ground and shuffle along. But it's a major city, so every time she came to the crosswalk at the corner, at the intersection, she had to look up to see the light, see when it would turn. And one day as she did so, in God's providence, she was looking up at the light, and right behind the light in her line of vision is the third floor of an office building. And in the window, a great big red cross and the words, Sengendai Alliance Church. And she saw that and she thought, maybe God, that, maybe that God would help me. She tried the Japanese gods, but they hadn't helped her. So she came into the worship service. And she cried through the whole thing. It wasn't because my sermon was so great. She said, I had no clue what you were talking about. You say, God, I, which God? There's eight million. You say, sin, we don't have a word for sin in Japan. Because there was never a God who said, this is right and this is wrong. So I had no clue what you were talking about. But the Holy Spirit was working in her heart. And she could sense that. So she came back the next week and the next week. And Kumiko came without missing for a half a year or more. And then one, one week after the service, she came up and she said, David, I, I can't live without Jesus. I have to follow him. I want to be baptized. In Japan, baptism is huge. When you publicly say, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. Because that's when the family and others will put on the pressure for you not to do that. Because if you become a Christian, you're not going to pray to the spirits. You're not going to pray for the ancestors. You're not going to take care of your mom and dad and your brother and sister when they die. They're spirits. And so the family is afraid. But Kumiko wanted to follow the Lord in baptism. So she was baptized. And God took the darkness out of her life, replaced it with joy, moved her from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loved, gave her hope and a reason to live. And for two years, this frail, tiny little lady grew to be the light of our church excited to be alive, thrilled to know Jesus Christ. And after two years, God said, it's time to go back home to your husband. So she left and went back to a mountain 
village where she's the only one in that town that doesn't belong to the Buddhist temple. The only one. But God poured his light into her heart and now she is light to those around her. But at her baptism, she gave her testimony, as we always do. And in her testimony, she said, this church, the doors to this church were like the doors of the sheepfold for me. And of course, she's referring to the story of Jesus where he told the parable of the man who had a hundred sheep. You all know the story. It's in Luke chapter 15 where the prodigal son and there are several parables about lost things. But this one goes like this. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. Lost sheep matter to God. Lost sheep like Kumiko and millions in Japan who have no clue who Jesus is. Lost sheep like your neighbor. Or maybe someone in your family. And that is good news. That's a message of hope to those who get to hear it. The good shepherd is very different than I am. I grew up on a farm. My dad worked on the railroad, but he had a hobby farm of 60 cows and about eight horses. But dad's railroad job took him from Pittsburgh down to Altoona, where he stayed in a hotel for a day or a day and a half or two days, and then brought a train back. So he's gone three days, home a day or two. So dad's hobby was really the kid's hobby. <laughs> Someone had to feed the cows to take care of them. They're beef cows. Any beef farmers here? Okay, yeah. If you grew up on a beef farm, you know, they're very different than dairy cows. Dairy cows are handled every day, milked. They're used to humans. Beef cows are like deer. They're wild animals. At least are. they're free out in the big pasture all the time. You can't get near them. But our cows always love the grass of the neighbor's field better than the pasture grass. So they're always out. And it was the kid's job to go chase them in. Dad is at Pleasant View Alliance Church in Segretown this morning. He's not here, so I can tell you. Never once after we chased them in did I ever count and make sure there were 60 in the pasture. You know, looks like, it's quite a few, looks like 60. If dad came home the next day and said, David, there's only 59, what's up? I probably wouldn't have cried or been too upset, but 59 out of 60 is not bad, right? (laughs) Tomorrow there's one less to chase. It's collateral. That's me. But thankfully that's not God. He doesn't say, wonderful, there's 150 people here. I'm satisfied. He says, right, but there's a whole bunch more. And even if there were just one more, like in the story, you'd still want that one. I don't know much about sheep farming. Never had a sheep. We had cows, pigs, and horses. But imagine for me that you're a sheep, a shepherd. 2,000 years ago, the time this story was told, okay? No fences, no four-wheeler. you got to walk in front of the sheep, Right? And you take them out in the morning to find grass and water. You've got to keep them from falling off the cliff or being eaten by the wolf. You're out there all day with them. On a beautiful fall day like today, it would be a great job, right? But a cold, rainy one like last night, or the hot, muggy summer days, it's got to be an exhausting job. Taking care of a hundred, can you imagine a hundred kindergarten students? Your job alone to take care of you got a hundred sheep, but at night you bring them back down and you put them in the pen. And they say he'd stand at the entrance to the pen and count them off as they go in to make sure they're all there. Then he gets to, he's done. He gets to lay down, kick off his shoes, have dinner, watch a football game and go to bed, right? But this night was different. Usually he's counting, getting happier every one that goes in, right? But he's counting 97, 98, 99. Where's that stupid sheep? It's the same one that ran off last week. 
We'll probably find him tomorrow. If a wolf gets him in the night, it's his fault. I told him to stick with us. Is that you? That's probably would have been me, right? But not this shepherd. What did he do? He goes back out to find him. It's night now. He's worked all day. He's just clicked out. He's going home. But no, it's night. He goes back out to look for him. He's walking around the mountains in the night. He's tired. It's dangerous to walk around the mountains in the dark. But he's walking around calling the sheep's name. And he walks and he searches until he finds it. Now, if it were you, what would you do when you found the sheep? Dumb sheep, I'll teach you. Right? Come on, be honest. No, what did he do? Were you listening? You know the story. What did he do? He, someone said, he carries it on his shoulders. Come on, at least you could put a rope on it and yank it along, you know. He's the one that's been walking around searching for it. He's the tired one. But he puts it on his shoulders to carry it all the way back down the mountain. And when he gets down, he does something else crazy. What's he do? Party time, right? It must be morning by then because he goes, knocks on all of his neighbor's doors. It says, come rejoice with me. Let's have, we're going to have a party. Let's have lamb barbecue. Now, it's beef tonight. This one is safe. We're going to celebrate because I found my lost sheep. Crazy love. This wasn't the good sheep. This wasn't the prize lamb that just won him $3,000 at Crawford County Fair. This is the one, bad one, that caused him trouble. The one that made him go out late at night. The black sheep. And yet he rejoiced that much. And Jesus made up this story and told it to us to try to give us just, just a little bit of an understanding of how much he cares for you and your neighbor and the guy at work or the friend at school. Every single one without exception. There's a God who created each one and loves them. And he wants each one in relationship with him. That is the good news, the gospel that we're told to share. Remember Enokukun, the young man who had shut himself up for seven years or so? One day he showed up at church with his mom and dad. And he accepted Jesus. God changed his life. And the lady in her 30s that Lois Long talked to under the door on the telephone for weeks and months at a time, she also got on her bicycle one day, came out of her room for the first time, got on her bicycle, rode to church, and she's a believer in Jesus Christ today. God has changed their life. These people's hearts that were filled with despair and darkness, filled with light and hope now. But most Japanese have never had the opportunity that these people have had. 99% of the Japanese still don't know who Christ is. Two out of a thousand attend a church of any kind. More than half the towns and villages in Japan have no church, no known believer. People will live and die there without ever hearing about Jesus. Unless someone goes. 2,000 years ago, Jesus did everything necessary for our salvation. He paid the penalty for sin. He made it possible to have a relationship with our loving Heavenly Father again. And when he came back from the dead, he said, Now I did it. Now go tell him. Go tell him. Go into all the world. Tell this great news to everybody. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10. Everyone who calls out, Jesus, I need you. God, save me. Help me. Everyone will be saved. But the next verse says, How could they call on one they've never heard of? Very simple logic, right? God is waiting. 
But how can someone call to him for salvation if they've never heard of him? And so he's given you and I the job to tell. Go and tell. You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You are the light. Go, he said. When we talk about missions, we ask the wrong question a lot of times. We say, are you called? As if you need a light from heaven and a big booming voice that says, go to Africa, in order to be part of the Great Commission, right? We have it in black and white. Go. Be light. So the question is not, am I supposed to? It's, where? To whom? Where am I supposed to go, God? To whom am I supposed to be light today and this week and down the road? I pray out of a group this size that some of you, God, will down the road lead around the world to places where there's yet no witness at all, where people don't have a chance. No Christian radio, no churches, no Christian bookstores or Bibles and Walmarts. There are lots of places like that in the world. I pray that God will take some of you there. Those places need light. But at least for this morning, sorry to say you're not in Tokyo. We're in Oil City. And that's where we'll probably be tomorrow morning, Western PA. And God says be light. So the question for us today is, to whom, God? Who needs that light around me today? Maybe it's someone who will sit on the sofa across the living room from you today watching a football game. Or maybe it's someone at work tomorrow or someone at school or a friend, someone in the neighborhood. Maybe it's someone you've shared with before and they weren't interested. But maybe like Kumiko, she had a chance one day in her life, 40 years before, one day as a fifth grader, somebody told her about Jesus. That was it. Never thought about it again for 50 years. But because of that, when she saw the cross, she remembered and she came in. Maybe it's someone you've told and they weren't interested, but maybe this is their time. Be light. You are the light of the world. Be light. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your light that shined in our hearts to move us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your Son. I thank you for that person who first told us about you, whether it was a parent or a friend or Sunday school teacher, somebody who had the courage to tell us about Jesus. But we remember that there are many who don't know Jesus. There are many in parts of this world who have no chance And so I pray that you would help us as the church to be obedient, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Lord, we desperately need more people to go, more people to be a witness in dark places of the world. I pray you'd speak to hearts today. At the same time, at least for today and probably tomorrow. We're not there, we're here. And there's much darkness around us here as well. How do you want to use us today? How do you want to use us tomorrow as we go out to work or to school, into the community, 
who around us needs to hear and to see Jesus Christ's love through us? God, there are a lot of people in this room. If you will answer that question for each of us, give us the courage and the obedience to be light today and this week, Lord. The world around us will be changed. We can't do it alone, but we don't need to because as soon as you say go, you said, and I will be with you always. So we ask for that. We trust in that. We rely on your power to change hearts. But help us to shine, Lord. Help us to be your light today, this week. Both here in Oil City and to the ends of the earth, I pray. In Jesus' name.